location. This is a radical shift from where mining and commodity production has been historically. I believe now the, the various sort of macro conditions and geopolitical conditions are right to be actually executing on metal market bifurcation. Getting paid appropriately for the standard at which you produce. Right, g'day buddy, Lord. it's Monday, 16th of October and a much demanded man is back on the Money of Mine show. Not he's, physically with, with us right now, Trav, but... Uh, he's been one of the most requested people to come back, probably the most requested to come back on the podcast. People loved his first appearance. It was punchy. It was a yep. topic that no one talks about, and he delivered it in a very compelling way. We're talking, of course, about Mr. Rusty Delroy. Russell Rusty Delroy, <laughs> founder and uh, what is he? Chief Investment. Is he call himself Chief Investment no, Officer? I, I can't remember his title, but uh, he's no, the because Dingo's CEO. Dingo's CEO, but Rusty's, Rusty, he must be chair or something. Executive, but, yeah. let's say he's executive <laughs> chair, chief investment officer, keys to the gates of the Nero Resource Fund, a, spe- a special boutique <laughs> resource fund based here in uh, in Perth. Yeah. And uh, as I said in the pre, go listen back to our first episode with him. Mate, he's absolutely smashed the returns in previous years, 500% over... Bloody oh, it's twenty five percent compounded. Twenty five percent compounded yeah. over a decade. So yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very impressive. So an absolute GC of the industry too. Now uh, you would have got a little prelude in the in, in the intro about what this is about. We're just going to get right into it. Big, big topic that uh, we've split it up into two parts, and you don't have to give much away because it's rusty. So you just listen to any episode with rusty. That's the golden rule of money and mine. If rusty's on, you listen to it. That's all you need to know. We're going to get right into it. So two parts, part one, obviously we're not pulp fiction. It's, uh, we're starting on part one. So part two is going to come out in a couple of days. They track sponsors for the today and oh, quite pertinent to the, the electrical revolution. We're seeing Ooh. smack, Power and technology, Marty Law and the team at the forefront of old electricity and new electricity. Mate, if you want a bloody a blue electrical box or a substation or anything underground yeah. for your diesel-fired power station to power, you, he can service that part of the industry, but he can also serve the greener methods of variable speed vent drives, like vent it. on demand, Power saving, mate. He caters for the new and the old. Everything electrical. You couldn't beat their um, very organic ad slip that we slipped into the podcast in a pit. We didn't even bloody plan that one. They just started talking about smack and before you know organic it. Organic advertisement. There's the ad. Managing But directors. that just goes to show you how um, how much, you know, the, the, the real bloody intellectual capability of Marty and the team there to create genuine cost savings for West Gold that it just come up in bloody conversation without, <laughs> without realising. Pleasure yeah. doing business so good with Marty. you, Smack. Like, no, keep no. saving costs everywhere and like it's bloody good for the environment in the process. Hey, when you've got a company that's nearly worth a billion dollars spoken about how instrumental that Smack have been in their business, mate, our, our work is done here, Trav. Get a hold of them, <laughs> Marty Law and Smack. Give them a ring. Every you know, and you know what every sponsor says. Oh, mate, we're getting heaps of comments. No one's rang us yet, <laughs> so ring them up. Just ring them up. So ring it up because I listen to money of mine. Just for a yarn, Marty loves a chat. <laughs> or go to his Friday Barbie. Right, Trav. Let's get into our chat with Rusty, 
Uh, mate, rip up. Part one. Here we go. Right, oh, no, Muddy Miners. Talk about talk about going back in a bit of history. Where, uh, where what's this joint called, JD? You know, you're going to Trowbridge Gallery in bloody thirty years. <laughs> JD's in the world. We're in his bloody father at his father-in-law's. Uh, what would you call it? Bit of a gallery museum. You make everything you need. Sure is, mate. It's a beautiful setup for this one. Quite, quite pertinent to JD because. The history around us is going to feed into the history that we are about to hear about from the infamous and enigmatic Russell Delroy, <laughs> Rusty from the Nero Resource Fund, the main man. Rusty, great to have you back on. Well, well received your uh, first episode, <clears throat> mate. Uh, we absolutely loved it. So yes. did the money miners. Good to hear, Maddie. Thank you, mate. Um, awesome to be back, particularly in in, in this place. This is Unreal. Well, you guys are really lifting the bar. And, and <laughs> Production, <laughs> you know, well, just we are, 1% better every day. Hey, yeah. Man. And we always Continuous said once we, get, once we got Rusty's first one out of the road, and as you said, it was your first and we needed to be gentle. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, look, <laughs> you've just come back next weekend for a bit more. Am I Rusty. expecting violence this time then? <laughs> Mate, Rusty, uh, this is a very broad, broad episode that we're going into, I'd say, but maybe you can surmise for the money miners yeah. what we're about to tackle in this chat. For sure. Um, I'll say off the bat, I will get a lot of stuff wrong. So this is a bit of, um, I think a bit of- You'll fit in well, mate. Yeah. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> it's my job not to be, but, um, but I'd continually do it. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, mate. So, uh, yeah, first up- I think the, the topic we're going to talk about is, is you know, there's a, there's an element here of where are we at and then there's a big element of where are we going and the, and so there's a lot of crystal balling around all of that. But, the um, yeah, the, the topic of conversation, which I think is, um, yeah, a really big one in our sector and, and, and unfortunately a bit overlooked and it's around uh, metal market bifurcation and um, – what is that? That's a kind of fancy way of saying. It's something that everyone's been saying, but no one knows when it's happening and really what it is. Yep. And we hopefully, uh, we're hopefully going to enlighten people today. Do, well, you, do you know? I, <laughs> not really. Uh, <laughs> so so I, I feel like this is, this is a radical shift from um, where, where mining and commodity production has been historically. So I, I, I think... There's probably been lots of people over the course of history who have thought about this and thought it made sense and then it never gets off the ground. Um, and what I would say is that I believe now the the various sort of macro conditions, if you like, and geopolitical conditions are right to be actually executing on metal market bifurcation and and. What does that mean? It really just means um, getting paid appropriately for the standard at which you produce something. And that bizarrely um, is something mining companies have never seemed to really advocate. I think they've probably tried around the fringes and there's bits and pieces of it, but yeah. So Bellevue aren't completely full of shit when they talk about green gold. Bellevue are definitely not full of shit. Um <laughs> I, I I suspect uh, Bellevue, as far as I'm aware, are, are going to be the lowest carbon gold producer on the market, or that's certainly the the intent. I suspect we'll see groups eventually go to zero 
carbon, gold and zero carbon. I, I think we'll see a lot more in this direction around particularly decarb, but as well as that other, um, you know, I think it all gets thrown in this ESG basket, but I, I think we're going to see um, better increased scrutiny, certainly from capital, um, which is what everyone listens to ultimately. And then, and then hopefully we're going to see um, government and industry working together to make sure that you get paid for that. It's, you can't. Anyway, we'll, we'll, I think we'll jump. Well, into Well, I think I think before we before we get right into it, I think for the money miners that don't haven't maybe haven't heard or don't understand what price bifurcation is or what it may be, is the example that Bellevue with this low carbon intensive gold that they will produce due to their solar, their renewables on site and things like that, they will potentially be able to get paid more for that by someone because it is a low carbon produced gold. That's right. So And then and for nickel, it would be a, a class one nickel sulfide producer in Australia will possibly get paid more for that nickel to go into a battery than a high carbon intensive Indonesian or Philippines nickel producer producing nickel laterite. Is yep. that is that pretty that's, much sum it up? That's a Rusty? really good suite of examples. Yep. Sweet, I'm just going to sit here and drink and vape now. <laughs> so I'm done with that. Aren't vapes illegal? Are they underground next yet? Year. You know they're banning vapes and smoking underground next year. So, mate, oh, I've got out in the, at the right time. I thought we were going the other way with drugs, but anyway. Um, <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's another topic. Uh, <laughs> Russ, no, yeah, that's I'll, the Money Miners Only Fans channel. I'll lead you in, Rusty. I mean, we find ourselves talking about mining companies every day on our podcast and we're like laser focused on two things. Mm-hmm. How much do they produce and how much did it cost them? To produce it mm. and why are we so focused on production and costs it's because like we assume miners have no influence on the price that they're going to get for the metal they produce they're price takers right yep so in this conversation i think we're going to momentarily challenge this assumption yep over the course of the next hour or so we're going to explore the global factors at play that may justify dispersion in metal prices mm-hmm. based on the location and manner in which they're produced if that seems a bit crazy, none better than the crazy Rusty Delroy to unpack it with us. Oh, okay. So we're, we're pretty stoked that you're here with us, mate. Cool. You, went, you, through, you went through a strict, um, there's a strict <coughs> bidding process, strict review of who was going to deliver this chat. <laughs> Rusty passed all the filter tests. Hopefully, we precipitate some some thought and and some conversation, and um, you can then get really you know way smarter people than me on. To, to break down some of the the subset um, pieces to this because there's a lot on it and, um, yeah, pumped to get into it. I think just on that comment you made around commodities it's a, and, and the two things you focus on when you're looking at companies, right, and that's what's um, always been perceived as that's what's controllable for a, a mining company or a pro- any producer of commodities, agriculture or anything. You know, you produce by definition, commodity is is homogenous, and so therefore, I'm a price taker. That's all out of my control. I can simply control volume and cost, um, and hopefully, volume up, cost down. So, 
<clears throat> that's the landscape in which all commodity producers have just been bred in and um, and understandably, right? That's that's just how things have been and particularly in a globalised world, um, that's only become truer. Uh what 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 has never really been focused upon, bizarrely, is the revenue line. And if you look at um, uh, guys like like Buffett and the like, you know, I don't think they even invest in commodities. <laughs> they invest in pipelines, like things that service commodity producers. But they generally don't like commodity producers because of that price taking element and the lack of moat and all those sorts of things and. <clears throat> And if you look at an Apple, for example, I mean, they produce a phone. There's lots of phone producers out there, but they're not the same as an Apple phone. And you can't build in brand like Apple does um, perhaps in commo in commodities is the, is the concept. So, or, or, or being the historical sort of position. So I think there's this natural place of saying, we produce something, it goes on an exchange, it's ubiquitous, it's homogenous, everybody as the same playing field and therefore I just take price. And I think we're entering a world, hopefully, where the commodity producers actually wake up and say, why the fuck am I accepting the same price for something done the right way as a guy or a girl or whomever producing something perhaps the wrong way, cutting corners, um, you know, uh, degrading environments why am I why am I accepting the same price for that? And why is the consumer saying paying the same price for that? Why is the government okay with that? There's a range of um, uh, stakeholders in this process that all need to coordinate, and at the moment they don't. Is there, is there has there been any examples in history in mining where there has been price making, like maybe the early spodumene concentrate sales from Pilbara, sort of chucking it up for auction? Or yeah. is that is is yeah. that an example of sort of what you're talking about and what price making versus price taking should look like? Yeah. The, uh, or is this more? It's more focused on the ES. If they're doing it in a responsible ESG responsible way, they should be getting paid a higher price for it. Yeah. So when you're trying to um, differentiate a product like like a like a commodity, um, you, I think what you're talking about there is. There have been things around the fringes, so so, and that relates to spec. So so, there's two components to this. One is spec, and one is providence. And I think historically, yes, there has been plenty of stuff around the fringes on spec. So if you look at, um, you know, let's take lith for an example. Um, maybe not SC six. Let's talk about um, finished lithium. So so, I think what the industry likes to throw around is battery grade lithium. There's very there's different pricing. You know, if you really hit high spec, if you push through um, to the lowest level of impurities on certain measures, then yeah, you're going to get a, a bit of a premium product versus the 99.5s. And I think the best example of that would be Oracobre. I'm sure you guys remember the journey there before the lithium market went crazy and it didn't matter. Before then, you know, they really struggled for um, full price participation because they could never meet. They were sort of hitting that 99.5, not 99.9 .9 and, and the like. So I think historically there has always been differentiation in pricing on spec and that, that persists today. But where I think things need to be far more focused is on providence and that's like understanding 
how and where something was produced. And this is a very complicated issue and there are a lot of vested interests who do not want to see this happen. Um, and if you break the industry apart and you look at just how influential metal traders and the like groups like Glencore and Trafigura, um, who are great guys, by the way, um, no, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's it's not in their interest to see this. They, they, they operate, you know, um, um, you need product, you make product, you guys just talk to me and I'll make sure everybody gets what they need. Um, that that middleman black hole, um, it works for them that there's not transparency and, and the like. So uh, providence is something that I think a lot of vested interests have never wanted to see. Um, and, and, you know, shuffling of commodities out of, places that they're not supposed to come from is an age-old tradition in commodity markets and you only need to look at you know russia and iran and it's still going on today right so without question so providence is something that hasn't been well fought for by the mining companies i dare say there's been a lot of vested interests that have fought against it but it is absolutely essential that it that it um, that it evolves for a variety of reasons. But most importantly, you need to have a price signal to bring on product from the right places. And what does that mean? It means we all, I mean, you know, I think the community by and large has a really negative perception of mining and, in, in, you know, in general, in first world jurisdictions. And, and I would say probably somewhat fairly in the sense that the industry, yeah, I think it gets a little bit unfairly tight. I mean, it's a small footprint relative to agriculture and the like. If you actually look at the ecological footprint, it's very small. But when things go wrong, they can go really wrong. And, and when it impacts water tables and the like, and you look at Octeti and some of the things like that, you've gone and you're like, well, fuck, fair enough. No wonder people get upset. The industry has allowed itself to constantly have this race to the bottom on cost because it can't control Revline Right? I can't control the revenue, can't tr control the price, I can't influence the price is their perception. So it's just this constant focus on cost. And when you do that, invariably you cut corners and, and managing things you know, to an environmental standard, whether it's decarbonisation, whether it's um, uh, mine site rehabilitation, sequential land use, these sorts of things, they all cost money. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a tight, if you're constantly competing with others who maybe don't do it, so let's say, uh, let's say you have a nickel mine here in Australia, and then you also refine that nickel all the way through to finished product, and that's all done at certain standards. How on earth are you going to compete with, you know, a, a, a or something like that? In well, yeah, exactly. The guys yeah. in the back of Russia doing whatever they want. And then, and then, punching. who knows what they're doing? Well, exactly, <laughs> something cool. Uh, no, but so, no, it's probably something very bad. And and um, and and the same in you know Africa and these sorts of jurisdictions, there isn't the same environmental scrutiny. And then you know that product getting processed in China um, as well to to way lower environmental standards that we can do here. And this is very complicated, but we need to have the price for the product encouraging higher standards. So it, it needs to be there and if it isn't, 
then we're going to continually race to the bottom on, on environmental stems. I think there's so, so many directions we can go. One question I want to ask you, Rusty, is around metals processing. So the, uh, the jurisdictions in which the metals come from is a sort of even mix. We know a lot comes from Australia and a lot comes from Western countries as well as the likes of Africa, Europe, South America. But the processing for almost every metal in the world is dominated by China. Yep. And that, that's no secret. What do you think needs to be done for that to change? I think nickel is a great example you touched on and we saw what's happening in Indonesia and that was through government incentives. They pretty much said, yep. this has to be produced You're not here. Elsewhere. Exactly. So Bang, you got eight H power plants. Like, yeah. <laughs> like that's how quick it is. And pretty effective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was incredibly – like there's yeah. so many examples of government initiatives that would have not worked anywhere near as successfully as that. So it worked remarkably successfully. But – uh, you know, I wouldn't bet that government initiatives are always going to work so successfully. But do you think that's what it sort of takes? Yeah. So <clears throat> there are there are a lot of components to this. There's action required from the miners to advocate for um, scrutiny of supply chains um, and and other mechanisms to get the price signal, whether or not you get paid a premium or you just cut out unethical or, uh, you know, non-environmentally uh, compliant material from the supply side. There's a variety of mechanisms, but first of all, the miners need to get the pricing happening. Government needs to play a role in that, in scrutinising these things. Um, and then realistically, if we want to have finished product in, you know, in raw materials, then yes, then the downstream has to have... Um, proper scrutiny. And, and I, I don't think there's a world in which you can expect to do that out of China, not at the moment anyway. That doesn't mean the Chinese can't do it elsewhere. So downstream requires, yeah, I, I think there's a, there's a strong push for, again, a variety of reasons, geopolitical um, being the, the biggest one, geostrategic, around reshoring. And that reshoring will go hand in glove with ESG and decarbonisation. So it'll be bringing home downstream processing, doing it to a really high standard. In fact, the current standard and better, and particularly decarb, and it's going to cost a lot more money. And that's the scary part and the big challenge. And as an example, I think you guys will have seen like in the lift sector, I think Albemarle came out not that long ago and, and – said, you know, the equivalent, and I think maybe Mins as well, the equivalent um, processing plant in the US was 3X, the, the CapEx of the plant in, in China. And, and, then, and then OPEX will be, I'm no doubt, a multiple of that too. So, and the Chinese one's <clears throat> always on time too. Oh, usually so, the so same as the Indonesian. Yeah, and, and I think this is really important to get into. First of all, there's this, I think, an understanding that, hey, geostrategically, we are way too entwined and dependent on China. If you go to a, 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 a war footing or a proxy war footing, as is the case with Russia, then if you go to either of those with China, it is, there is no way we can, you know, the, the um, uh, commercial sort of um, constraints, we, put, we can't do that. We're so dependent. There's so much product Going through. It's not just manufacturing, it's it's all the way through that chain, particularly around processing. So there's an awareness. We need to decouple 
That means friendly jurisdictions and bringing it home. Um, and so that's all well and good. And, and it's, it, I agree with all of that. It's very important to do it. But there's an enormous cost. And it, what we fail to, I think, really introspectively recognize is we've spent 30 or 40 years moving this stuff. We've, I think, collectively, as, a, as you know, the West or the First World has really told itself, oh, remember all that filthy stuff that used to be? We've really cleaned all that up. And here's this old German industrial site, and now it's this wonderful new um, residential precinct. And, you know, great stuff, awesome. Those things weren't done better. They were just done elsewhere. And so we've shifted that. Right, and it's all got you know textiles to India, um, metal processing um, to China predominantly. That's created a whole set of risks. We've kitted ourselves that we're doing things better. It's really just taken that you know the externality or the environmental cost and just parked it somewhere else. Um, and then we're sort of now saying, hey. There's a risk to that. I don't think that the environmental drivers, unfortunately, are the reason for the for the concern. It's the geostrategic um, issues that are the most pertinent. There's a recognition of that, but then there's an assumption that we're just going to bring that home. It, these guys haven't, you know. I think China gets a narrative around copying and that you know they they do things cheap and nasty, and they don't. I think that's fucking bullshit. That they're way past that. Maybe a decade or so ago, sure, but. It's fucking bullshit today. These guys are innovative. They are dominating mineral processing. They are so far past where we were when we handed it over to them. We have no idea. Not only do we not um, have, you know, the, the cap, like the competitiveness on cost, we don't even really know how to do a lot of this downstream. Well, I think what, you, what, look like, at the examples. You got the Tianchi. IGO downstream, I don't think that's performed too well. You got BH BHP's downstream nickel refinery mm. in Granada. I don't think that's performed nickel sulfate plant. That hasn't performed well. Well, it's I don't not, they're I, not executing yet. No, I, I mean, and we've just scratched the surface, right? Like we're yeah. just starting Early days. an enormous process to try and reshore this stuff. And the Chinese, I think, have already made a lot of noise around, well, maybe we're going to constrain some of our IP. Um, and so there's this irony, there's this perception that the Chinese just steal all our IP. And they did that. That's just true. They did it, but they're, they're way past that point. Yeah. And ironically, we are now going to need to steal their IP. <laughs> like we are. <laughs> I think battery tech is the, the best example. BYD and cattle between them, over 50% of all EVs. So that is Tesla. So they're, they're Chinese EV manufacturers, are they, Jada? Cattle yeah. are the battery manufacturer. BYD yeah. make EVs as well as batteries. Yeah. They make over 50% of the world's EVs now, and that's to the likes of Volkswagen, BMW, Ford, Tesla, all these groups. So they're just so far ahead. Even the CEO of BMW said not too long ago, like, I don't think we could catch them if we wanted to. Are BYD, are they and like selling into America? So there's BYDs driving next to Teslas? Well, that, that is... A really interesting part of the debate because selling into America for a Chinese manufacturer has a 27.5% tariff on top of the IRA, which I'm sure we'll talk about, an added benefit mm. for the US manufacturers. So that that's a pretty insurmountable wall. There's no Chinese cars going that way. If it were a, if it were a level playing field, 
I'm sure you'd see much definitely. more market presence. So where, where's yeah. most of their market? Is it going? Is it mostly China that are no, driving they're, they're, these well, BYDs? B, B, well, the Chinese, I think, are about to become the. Well, I think about. Well, B, sorry, BYD is yeah. about to become the world's largest. Yep. Um, uh, producer of EVs. Yeah. China has already become the world's largest exporter of automotives. Yeah. And yep. you would never know that sitting here in Australia. Yep. You would never know that sitting in the US. You're about to fucking know it sitting in Europe. They yeah. are coming. They're coming big. And I think um, Gav Cow did a, a great piece recently uh, comparing like a, a you know, a, a spec, spec comparison vehicle. So i.e. You know, same mileage and 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 whatever the key yep. measures of specification in an auto are between a Chinese vehicle, I think it was BYD, and an equivalent vehicle out of a European manufacturer. The Chinese number, I think, was about thirty five thousand euro, and the equivalent vehicle in Europe was about fifty five thousand euro. That is enormous. That is not fractionally or a slightly or a bit uncompetitive. That is fucking miles off. Yeah. You are gone. There is no way the consumer is ever going to be disciplined enough to turn around and go, oh, I don't know about that Chinese thing that does exactly what I need for nearly half the cost of the, the local one. I would love to think that's the case, but nine out of ten consumers aren't, aren't going to care. Well, yeah. I, did, I didn't know. I think, I've, I think I heard this right on a podcast or something, but – I don't think cars make manufacturers make that much money. It's like some. It was like a fifty grand car makes five grand. So like they're not doubling their. It's the CEO of Ford spoke about this not too long ago, and he said now our biggest you know concern is Chinese. That's no longer Toyota or GM or any of them. They're targeting an eight percent profit margin 8% on their yes. electric vehicles. And yeah, I mean for the EVs going from China to Europe, that's a ten percent tariff. So they can climb that. That sort of thirty-five to fifty-five thousand euro wall. The European Union, like Ursula von der Leyen, they're getting really concerned about this. The car making like industry in Europe is a six hundred fifty billion dollar industry. It employs, I think, thirteen million people. It is a huge concern for them. So maybe you can see them really competing on luxury because that takes a long time to chip away at a Porsche, a Ferrari. Yeah, but for the cars that the everyday person needs to drive, it's a it's a big big concern. Yeah, again, Gav Cow did a great piece on this, talking about um, you know French being French automotives and the French government being far more sensitive to this. The German automotives and government being a little bit less sensitive because, because the Germans the, sell to that, the Chinese. That's right. Yeah. So the Germans are about fifty fifty, and because it's a premium product, they export a lot of it. Their current position is, oh well, you know, our brand. There is a moat with their product, right? Like yeah. we were about earlier, there is a, a brand and a premium applied to, you know, a Porsche or a, or a Ferrari or well, that's not a German one, but you know, yeah. you get the picture. The French typically produce middle of the range vehicles, Peugeot, for example, and they don't export them to China. And so there's the French are, are very big on wanting to protect those markets. The Germans are a little bit more reluctant because they're worried about um, protectionism that might flow back to them from Chi from the Chinese market that they're, they're you know heavily involved in so there's complication here around the politics the you know when we sort of link this back to the start of the conversation metal market bifurcation well this is the tip of the spear the EV industry 
is the is the sort of most pertinent issue and to for exactly the reason you just pointed out because there is so much at stake in an existing industry in jurisdictions like the EU and and North America and 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 you know Germany with I think it's 10 to 12% of GDP being directly and indirectly out of the auto industry so it's a here and now issue not a fucking oh down the line or you know just environmental outcomes or even the geostrategic stuff, you know, you can always sort of say, oh, that's a little bit away. No, no, it is like right here, right now, we are about to be fucking radically uncompetitive. And so, yeah, it's the tip of the spear. It's the, I think it's very instructive as to what's happening there for the broader metals and mining industry and processing and, and the like. There's a lot of implications for iron ore and steel and you know all sorts of commodities, and um, and I think it's it's important that we really really pay attention to what's going on because I think what we're going to see is is carrot and stick. We're going to see protectionism. We're going to see subsidisation, all sorts of things around that, and that's going to be instructive then to how that rolls out into other commodities. And um, you know, yes, I think the best example is the IRA right at the minute. That's in place. There's an incentive or a subsidy tied to providence of the raw material. That mm. drags us back to where we started, providence of the raw material. And so suddenly- Foreign entities of concern. Correct, foreign <laughs> entities. Yeah, exactly. So what does that mean? It means it bifurcates. Suddenly there are two markets for that material. There is the compliant market and the non-compliant market. There's the, there's the product that gets you a subsidy and the product that doesn't. So what are, what are the main areas around the world that fall into that non-subsidy? The bad ones, the red, the red flag ones, uh, like obviously cobalt coming out of Congo is, I assume, one example. Oh yeah, so I think you start start with autos and EVs. Look at the um, minerals that go into the batteries. That's, I mean, that, that's not rocket science for me to point that out. Um, the key minerals being lithium, cobalt, nickel. Uh, manganese playing an important role as well, um, but they're the they're the main ones. And yeah, I mean, in terms of you then go to okay, they're the they're the materials. You then go to well, what does that supply chain look like? So where is the raw material um, extracted? Then where is it sent and processed? Um, and uh, you know, I think I think of all of those uh, cobalt is the most pertinent. You know, in terms of concentration risks. That's seventy plus percent out of the DRC, um, and uh, I think it's around a similar percentage, maybe higher, of of global raw material than processed in China. So, you, and and then anything in the DRC, I think ten of fourteen cobalt mines in the DRC, something like that, are owned by the Chinese. Anything that's not Chinese is owned by Glencore. So mm. it's the trifecta. It's like, and, and they moved so early, like Cmoc bought. Tenki, like the biggest cobalt mine there, produces over 200,000 tonnes of copper. Yep. 20-odd thousand tonnes of cobalt per yep. annum. They bought and that in, in 2016. Yes, in the worst fucking market. Cobalt yep. was on its knees. Copper was on its knees. No one was buying anything. I remember it because I had a, you know, a, 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 it was early in my journey as a, with the fund and 
It was brutal. Everything was trading at that cash. Is that that cash time machines. when you were uh, saying, you said, oh, we're beating the market, we're down 30%. What do you want, a fucking pat on the back? Yeah, 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 yeah that's, that's exactly the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's burnt into my memory. And um, yeah, so so I, I remember the transaction so clear. I know where I was sitting. I remember my desk and everything and being like, what the fuck? Like, what is that about? And it was it was right around the time we'd started to look at you know, other components in the batteries. We'd done a fair bit of work around lithium and it was just so mind-blowing that they did it at that point. The, the foresight was incredible. Yeah. And I think they've known where things were heading for a long time and the Greenbushes transaction was equally shocking at the time and everyone said they paid overs and you know, they bought the world's best lithium asset pretty cheaply as it turns out. So... You know, they've been ahead of this curve for a long time and they absolutely dominate um, ownership of of raw materials in certain pockets, particularly things like cobalt and, um, and, and lith as well when you look at the asset spread globally. They then truly dominate the processing and... Um, even to something like rare earths, which is a fascinating space, and I think that's the go-to when everyone talks about, you know, China risk and dependency, because that that's a commodity where they they produce a lot of the feedstock and they do the bulk of the processing. Now, you know, a, a kind of dirty secret. And I think there's a great piece on on Livewire from from a, a guy you guys, yeah, Kingsley Jones. Yeah, you've had my money of mine. It's awesome. Y- yeah. Mm. So so sorry. Yes. You, yeah. You have done a piece with him and and. He breaks that down fantastically well around, you know, even Linus's material. Yeah, it gets sold to Japan, but then it 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 you know it goes to China. Mm. If you if you want to finish that stuff, it's going through China. So, yeah, the dependency is everywhere. So rare earths, cobalt, lithium, like fuck you name it, and it's it doesn't stop there either, right? And in in EVs in particular. And this is why I think there's been some guys out there who have literally said that the the policy around committing to you know zero ICE beyond 2030 or something like that is economic suicide for Western autos. And and I understand that comment. That's not to say, oh, don't do it. It's like we still need to head that direction. But if we're that, if we, if you better be very careful because the head start China has on this is enormous. So. Raw material security, fucking miles ahead. The EU owns nothing. The US have just started buying a couple of things. They're still fucking miles behind. So raw material, China miles ahead. Processing, utterly dominant. We don't even know how to do most of this stuff in any sort of a competitive fashion. Then you go into the precursor and actual battery manufacturing. F- we don't even have one. I don't even think that like, there's a few interesting startup-y type things. <laughs> you know, CATL being the primary, we are fucking miles off. So safe to say China dominate all of those steps, raw material processing, precursor, um, mm. and then battery manufacturing and technology itself. All right, Trav, part one. There we go, because we went for about a bloody hour and a half, so we decided to, decided to split it up. Thanks to JD's father-in-law for... Uh, 
bloody look he did have us there but he was showcasing all his shit he wants to sell let's <laughs> fuck it let's, let's just cut to the chase I think Rusty bought something on the way out I too, reckon he, he did I reckon he did pick up um, some old map of Frio I, I think he was looking at but um and that was Wicked with menu. his own money, not near us. <laughs> no irresponsible use of fun money. Very true. That was I, wicked. I'm pretty damn excited for part so two. Part two, we're going to... Um, we, we sort of then flow on from where we are to... Your first question is, so how did we get here, Rusty? I guess the history of what's led us to this point of why bifurcation is maybe an, maybe an outcome. Mm. Uh, and then, I guess... We didn't. Uh, we didn't really touch on the IRA, but we did talk about you know the the implications of the IRA and where this little premium gets just floated onto the consumer. Mm. Hence the why well, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. And um, talked about heaps of other stuff. What else <laughs> we talk about? I won't lie. I haven't edited the second bit yet. Cannot forget. Oh mate, I think we just uh, thank our partners and let them listen to the next bit when it comes out. <laughs> now, nah, beauty, thanks to all the partners. Smack Power and Technology at the top of the show. The OG sponsors Anytime Exploration Services and Terra Capital. The RC Drilling Experts at K Drill and the Financial Recruitment Specialists and Golfing Extraordinaires because they only do that on a Friday RV when they've placed everyone at JP Search. Michael and Zab. Thanks to all the partners. And hooteroo, uh, money miners. Hooteroo. Information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, your needs, of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation, and needs.